Welcome to Freeverse, the seasonal podcast from Aideen Lynch and Annie Rutherford discussing queer stories with a particular bias for poets from the last 100 years. Ish. This podcast is for anyone who wants to know more about queer history and queer identity in history and about poetry as an accessible, passionate art form. And for everyone who wants to be affirmed and inspired by queer makers. Hi, everybody. Annie and I are really excited to share this episode with you. We've been sitting on it for quite a while because we just needed to edit quite a bit because we talked for about two and a half hours. So we've condensed it down to just over an hour. But we also wanted to include before the main discussion some content warnings and trigger warnings about some of the content. In particular, our discussion of Disclosure, the Netflix documentary, uh, requires some content warnings and trigger warnings for mentions of trans violence and transphobia. We'll be also reading some poems that deal with trans violence and transphobia, but we'll also repeat the content warnings before the poems themselves. For now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Since our last episode, released on the 25th of February, 2020, not much has happened. We did record a third episode on the AIDS epidemic and its literary history, but um, my laptop ate the audio, so we recorded it again, and my laptop ate the audio again, and then it was March 2020, and nothing out of the ordinary happened that we're going to admit right now because we don't want to think about it, only that we changed the podcast series. (laughs) to elide any episode on a global health crisis for the time being. Definitely. So so instead, uh, we changed the podcast series. Episode three would focus on trans poetry because time is dead and therefore we're right on schedule. So uh, for, for our queer pop culture segment, we wanted to talk about the Netflix documentary, Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen, because it came out earlier this year and it just gives this really detailed insightful depiction of how Hollywood has treated trans people and the impact of their stories on trans lives and American culture in general. It's a fantastic show it is quite hard to watch at points uh, but one of the things that it pinpoints is a visibility paradox. Uh, More representation means more acceptance but it also means more violence against trans individuals and communities. As the disclosure director Sam Fader says, as marginalized communities get mainstream attention, backlash ensues. The documentary hosts a range of trans celebrities like Laverna Cox, Candace Kane, Janet Mock, Lily Wachowski. I, why, is that how you say it? I've never seen The Matrix. I don't know. I think it's Wachowski because Americans tend not to go with the like original pronunciation. But, you know, I don't think Lily will mind. (laughs) Um, Jamie Clayton and Chaz Bono. It starts at the beginning of film when silent films featured men dressing in women's clothing, despite the fact that cross-dressing was illegal. And from there, Disclosure outlines tropes in a series of discussions about film that really opened our eyes. So the first one is the trope of trans characters as psychopaths and murderers. Um, The prime example here is, of course, Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. But this was predated by murder, exclamation mark, in 1930 and seen again, of course, in Silent of the Lambs in 1991. I say, of course, I've not seen any of these. I'm very easily scared. Um, those those extracts were not good for an Annie. Um, trans people were very much placed as the other here, and they were placed in horror tropes to evince distrust and fear in the audience. The second trope is trans violence victim narrative, um, and that was quite a that was really quite an eye opening moment in the documentary where just all of the actors being interviewed talked about how many times they had played corpses, basically. Third trope. It's really, yeah, like, it's just something that really strikes you as you're watching it. Like, I, I've just never made that connection, despite having seen it in TV again and again and again. But then they're like laying it out for you in the documentary. And I was just like, oh, this is really horrendous. Yeah, it really was something that as soon as you've, as soon as they mentioned it, you're kind of like, oh, oh, yep, yep, absolutely. And equally the first thing, and like I said, I am not a horror film person, but even for me with my far away from pop culture person knowledge like that seeped through but it's not something you pick up on the pattern of until you see it and then it's very very blatant 
So no, a third trope is an obsessive focus on surgery and body parts when trans people appear on talk shows and news programs. And this is usually followed by intrusive, invasive questions that the interviewer doesn't understand are actually quite offensive. Some of those clips were really hard to watch. They're just really painful. Like, I can't believe this happened on TV. I know. And it's sort of one of those things where you think, how how would anyone not think that asking about someone's genitalia may maybe maybe a private and personal thing that you don't need to talk about on national TV? Oh my it's just so othering. Like immediately othering. Absolutely. And I thought that what, oh gosh, one of the actresses said about that was really, and it was on a news program where she'd been asked and she sort of said, this reduces us to just one thing. And actually, you know, trans communities are faced by huge amounts of violence, faced with huge amounts of violence, huge amounts of discrimination. And if all you're asking about is our surgery, we don't even get to talk about that. Well, like we don't even get to point out all of the ways in which we are discriminated against and I thought that was a really good point. There's also the trope of the disclosure of one's transness as a storyline. It's assumed to be absolutely imperative and unavoidable in film, TV, and I'd argue also in books. And then it's something that you do come across and you get it with gay and bi stories as well of that thing you have to come out yeah it's it's like the plot point is that this is like a shock value thing of like what you're not the default and it's just very hackneyed now like as far as gay storylines go and the fact that like they bring this up as disclosing transness as a storyline is like the same sort of boring repetitive predictable plot that you would use to other a queer character but like it's just that you know yeah for trans people it's like it's still happening it's still seen as like an other with a capital o and this is something and this is something we were talking about personally is I find it so bizarre because I've admittedly it's been, you know, when people have, when my friends have come out to me as trans, it's been when they have been about to transition and it's a different, a different situation, but I've never been surprised. You know know this person and you know them and you care about them and you're like, yes, yes, I know you're a trans man. Can we please get back to the important parts of our friendship? And I will always be there for you for anything which is difficult. Like, I don't know. It, I find it so mind-blowing that all of the stories we hear about coming out, whether it's to do with being trans or to do with being gay, yeah, is this shock element. Yeah. And that's absolutely never been my experience. Well, it's like what the fir- one of the first people that I came out to as non-binary was my friend Han, and they were just like, oh, bitch, I knew. <laughs> I like, yep, exactly. Okay, well cool and they're like all right can we can we keep drinking now is this a thing and i was like no that's that's fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah obviously yeah and i don't know i remember even just like um the number of times that i have mentioned being bi purely because a friend has been like yeah but i mean you're not straight right right it's yeah (laughs) it is a kind of fascinating (laughs) disjunction between lives and how they are portrayed yeah i mean i kind of really want that one time though i would love somebody to come out to me in it to be a shock i want to know what that's like that that would be pretty that would be pretty bizarre yeah right but like it's stuff like that where where it's clearly that's a storyline that's been written by someone who has never spoken to a trans person yep maybe even never spoken to a queer person and is just like obviously this is the only possible way that we can talk about this story yeah and i think that is something um oh gosh what's it called there's a lovely lovely webcomic about a queer ice hockey player it's adorable but there's a gorgeous bit where oh. he and oh. his boyfriend my flatmate Ella was talking about this and now I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely heard of this. We before. will remember the name and put it in the show notes. It's gorgeous. And there's a gorgeous bit where he and his boyfriend come out to the rest of their team. Or not come out, but like say they're in a relationship and it is also kind of a coming out. And everyone's just kind of like, oh, okay, you're together. Oh, bagels. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it's really lovely. And you can tell that that was written by someone who has been in this situation. That's relatable. Yeah. Another thing that came up and which, again, was very, very painful to watch was um, the trope of men reacting to trans women with visceral disgust. And oh, God. The... Yeah. Jesus. It was horrible. The prime example of this, and I think the most 
disturbing in a way because it's a children's film was Ace Ventura. Yeah. Pence Detective. It was horrible. Mm. And where this guy realizes that the woman he had fancied um, is a trans woman and spends a very, very long time having to express his very physical disgust, I think is the most gentle way I can put it. It's very, it's very difficult to watch. And more so because like they intersperse clips from that film in the documentary with the interviewee's reactions. Yeah. And you can just like, it's, it goes beyond words. Just you can see how upset it makes them. And rightfully so. Cause it's just like, Absolutely. it's again, it's just so dehumanizing and bizarre, like just completely illogical and really insidious because like they show how it spawned sort of further like that same trope then like appearing in other tv shows and films after that really uncomfortable but i'm glad the way they presented it it's one of those things as well of one of the one of the actors being interviewed talked about it's absolutely fine making things funny as long as everyone is laughing yes yeah but not making trans people the joke and that was the I don't know. It's like we're all very good about finding aspects of our own lives that are bizarre and weird and hilarious. Mm. But none of this was all very much pointing and laughing. Yeah. And it, oh, it was awful. It was so uncomfortable. And then finally, a point that came up was the issue of cis actors playing trans characters to critical acclaim. Examples here being Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, Eddie Redmayne, of course, fairly recently in The Danish Girl, and Cillian Murphy in Breakfast on Pluto. <laughs> I love, oh my gosh. So this is just going to be a very um, Irish note for now. But um, because I obviously grew up in Ireland, I never realized that name is unusual outside of Ireland because it's a hard C. It's Killian. Um, ah, I'm saying all of these being like, I have only heard of Eddie Redmayne and the Danish girl before watching Disclosure. So I'm going to say something here wrong. So <laughs> It's funny because like Killian Murphy is, because he's sort of less famous in Hollywood, like people probably know him most from Batman and stuff. I just forget that like, it's not, it's not a well-known name. Anyway. Yeah. The, the cis, the cis actress playing trans characters thing. I remember having this sort of discussion slash argument with a cis man mm -hmm. who was insistent that um, actors shouldn't be told oh well because you are not of this gender class etc you can't play this character because he's like well by that logic they couldn't play any character that isn't already them and I was like the issue with your argument is that you're concerned about your freedoms as a cis person being taken away mm. Which is exactly what is happening to the trans people yep. whose stories these are. You know, like it was just such a complete contradiction in terms. But at the same time, there was something that stuck out in the documentary for me, which was Jen Richards' comment on that, on cis actors being cast as trans uh, act characters and then getting critical acclaim for those, especially like Jared Leto getting an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. And he accepts the Oscar with like a full beard. And there's just something in that visual of like, asserting your masculinity with such an obvious symbol like that while accepting an award for playing a trans woman like I couldn't articulate before Jen Richards said it out why that felt so uncomfortable and she says having cis men play trans women is a direct link to the violence against trans women and I remember when, it, when she first said that I kind of my brain went I don't know how that fits even though I, I don't have the vocabulary yet and I, it sort of forced me to re-engage with the fact that like, even though as a non-binary person, I fit under the trans umbrella, like I don't have that experience. I don't have the trans experience in the same way. But she goes on, in my mind, part of the reason that men end up killing trans women out of fear that other men will think that they're gay for having been with trans women is that the friends, the men whose judgment they fear, only know trans women from media and the people who are playing trans women are the men that they know. Yep. And I just sat there as she said that. I was just so blown away because it's so concise like it's such an articulate yeah. way to explain why this is an issue and she says this doesn't happen when a trans woman plays a trans woman when you see these women off screen still as women it completely deflates this idea that they're somehow men in disguise and like that was the clinch point for me i was like that is why yeah it's not okay like even though eddie redmayne does a beautiful job playing in the danish girl and does a very respectable job and he was very particular in all of his interviews to be very compassionate and empathetic and do the right research and have the right vocabulary 
it's still ultimately a cis man playing a trans woman, which implies that transness is a performance, that it's not intrinsic. I was just so grateful to have access to such an articulate way to express that and why that is violent. And I thought that some something that plays in, something that she doesn't mention, but the thing that we're very aware of in Scotland at the moment is the argument that men could take advantage of any kind of laws trying to protect trans people in order to allegedly dress up as women and attack women. Quite frankly, if a man's going to attack a woman, he's going to do it anyway, yeah. leaving that to the side. But I felt like that ca- it was the same thing of it wasn't recognizing that these are trans women are trans women are trans women. It was seeing men performing femininity. Right. Yeah. And and I just thought, you know, it ties into all of the insidious arguments that are going on at the moment. I thought it was a really, really, really well made point. Yeah, but just watching that documentary was like really important and really difficult, but it also made me feel a lot more sort of centered in being more outward looking, like having that vocabulary and that background to now be like, be able to point at things like, you know, cis men playing trans characters and saying, this is why this is a problem. Because I'd like felt it before, but I didn't know exactly how to phrase it or how to argue it. Which sort of leads me to my last point before we get into like the main content of the episode. Speaking of disclosure, neither one of us as podcast hosts identifies as trans. Like if I took on labels for myself, it would be soft, butch, non-binary, queer person. And so while I do acknowledge that, you know, my identity falls under trans as an umbrella term, I'm very conscious that I don't experience my gender as a trans person does. And so if there is anything in this episode that sort of fails to accurately respect or discuss transness, I want that critique. I want to hear it because I am very conscious of my own position of privilege while also identifying as a member of the trans community. But there's a nuance there that I have to acknowledge is not they're not the same thing. And yeah, I just feel like it's important for me to foreground that because, you know, even just watching Disclosure made me realize that like there are still things that I need to acknowledge and, and learn from. Absolutely. So moving on to poetry. Uh, The first two episodes of this podcast were very concerned with outlining a queer cultural and legal history and emphasizing lesser known voices from our past. So now we've lulled all of our listeners into a false sense of security, we're going to introduce more poetry and scare you all off. Yeah. Uh, Today's episode is a celebration of just a small number of out trans poets and a variety of their work, which sometimes does and sometimes doesn't talk about transness. This is quite a different discussion because sexuality has been our queer focus thus far and we're now looking at gender as a queer focus and really celebrating transness as a part of queer history. So a quick vocab lesson for those of you who need a refresher. Transgender means denoting or relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond to the gender they were assigned at birth. And this usually refers to someone who wants to transition from one gender to another. Sometimes that means taking medical hormones, sometimes it means having surgery, and it's each person's personal choice. Their transness is not dependent upon physical transition. Some people choose to take hormones or undergo surgery as part of a gender transition, but do not identify as trans, and instead as non-binary, genderqueer, agender, etc. So trans is an umbrella term. And it refers to trans people who choose to transition, trans people who do not choose to transition, genderqueer people, non-binary people, agender people, and so on. And if you want to understand how to pass these different terms and identities, think of it simply as someone who does not feel their identity or gender necessarily matches up with what other people see or label them as. Someone who does feel that their identity or gender matches up with what they were assigned at birth, their cisgender, from the Latin prefix cis, meaning same. This isn't and anything sorry, new brief, in... Brief point there that I'm just really... I'm always kind of amused by the fact that homosexuality is so generally understood as same-sex attraction mm. and that being sort of discriminated against. And there's something hilarious to me in the fact that cis people don't even know that they have like the flip side of that. It's like, yeah, well, you're like, you're the same gender that you were assigned at birth. So like, I, I'm still trying to formulate like a really great joke about that. I haven't quite gotten there yet, but there's something in it that I think is so funny and so apt for like all of this like homophobia. I'm like, well, you're cis, but I haven't gotten there. I don't know what the punchline is, but it's there. Like, it's just like 
slightly out of reach. <laughs> That's the most you niche joke. <laughs> it's like Latin prefixes. <laughs> uh, I love it. It's a great joke. If it existed, it would be hilarious. <laughs> That's what makes it easy for you. <laughs> It's like, I can see you going on about this for like an hour and a half when you were drunk. <laughs> and just like very incoherently like shouting abuse at straight people being like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, it's funny. You just have to be smart to get it. Okay. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see this happening. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I interrupted you to make not a joke. Please go on. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. So this isn't anything new. In indigenous communities and tribes throughout North America and the Pacific Islands, such as Cherokee, Lakota and Cree tribes, the terms two-spirit and mahu, which could be included in our vocabulary as trans, have been in use for hundreds of years. So why don't most white Western people know about it? Well... We're part of a race that colonized gender, subjugated these indigenous cultures and instituted power with a white binary gender identity. And that isn't just happening in North America. The, well, that didn't just happen in North America. The monolithic mm. oppression enacted by white cis colonizers is still happening to trans people across the world today. I would like to insect here. I saw an amazing Twitter thread, which I have since lost. And if anyone can find it again for me, I would love it, about the fact that a lot of sci-fi um, tends, even though you'd think like sci-fi and fantasy, these can be any worlds, you know, there should also be queerness, everything is possible, mm. about how a lot of it is still very heteronormative. And someone did this whole thread of this is because these worlds have also been colonized by the white christian aligned right colonizers and they did this whole thing about star trek and they were like this is the character who is colonizing things and getting rid of queerness Ooh. it was hilarious and beautiful yeah it was a very good parody but still on point description of how one worldview gets perpetuated and i can highly recommend it if anyone can ever find this random twitter thread <laughs> I think it was Robin Stevens who wrote it, but I've gone back through her tweets and I couldn't find oh. it. Well, hopefully it'll show up again. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. Decolonizing gender was like uh, something that I read about when I started doing more queer studies research. And I didn't fully understand what it meant because white privilege and have since been like learning more about the fact that there have been genders outside the binary in other cultures and communities like across the globe that have just been like subjugated and marginalized because of white colonizers who didn't want that understand mm. it i just i want to learn so much more about that because to me that just signals again how other identities and i'm saying other with like a small o other identities yeah. outside of the like white binary gender identity have existed for so much longer and have are part of history but have been erased from that and that's like such a big theme of our podcast really is wanting to talk about stories that have been around forever but haven't been given the limelight, haven't been given a spotlight because of discrimination and ignorance and colonization. But that's also one of the reasons why, like the first poet we're going to look at today is Travis Alabanza, who, I mean, I, if I could like put in sound effects to this podcast and have just like <laughs> a full drum roll jazz entrance with fireworks and everything, that is what I would do for Travis Alabanza. I feel like we could put in sound effects. You know, I, this could I happen. Attempt. so many feelings travis alabanza is this english theater maker they're based in london they're trans non-binary activists a poet and they grew up in a working class background in bristol and then discovered theater and performance art and i just i mean this this was supposed to be like a you know a chill sort of reintroduction to the podcast after such a sudden hiatus but i have so many feelings about travis i first heard them speak when they were in edinburgh in february 2019 because there was an event up here in the university where they were being interviewed by Jess Bruff, who is the founder mm -hmm. of Fringe of Color and hopefully will be a guest on the podcast in a future episode. Whoop, whoop. And Travis was just being interviewed as like a, you know, as a general, how did you get into performance art, like poetry, etc. And they read from their chat book. And I, I walked into this room and it was one of those wonderful moments where I walked into this lecture theater and everyone in the room was queer. And you just knew mm -hmm. 
Mm. And just like looking around this room, I knew as it turns out, like half the people there, obviously, because Edinburgh's tiny, but you had this feeling of like, it didn't matter if I didn't know anyone in the room. You walk in and just like immediately there's just this unspoken sense of solidarity. Everyone is just immediately like a part of this community. And I heard Travis speak. And Jess incre- like, was an incredible interviewer because they were asking lots of questions about their experience as a black non-binary activist, as a poet, as a working class performance artist, theatre maker in London. And Travis has this incredible ability to be both so funny, like so brilliantly like comedic, and yet at the same time so moving and profound. There was a couple of people around me when Travis especially started talking about their experience as like a very visibly trans person. And like the violence that comes with that sometimes and would bring the room to tears and immediately get like give them a joke to like lighten it a bit. And it was just it was such a like lovely, moving, powerful, like hour and a half of just this one interview that happened. And Travis sort of teased the idea of bringing their performance art burgers to the fringe, which they did, which I'll, I think I'll talk about after we read through their poem. So, yeah, the, I'll let Annie read this because... I'm going to talk a lot, but before each, <laughs> before each of the poems, um, we'll give some content warning because I, I mean, I'll put a content warning on the podcast episode too, but I think we'll put more before each poem in particular as well. So for this poem, the content warning is street harassment, verbal abuse, transphobia. And yeah, it, it's a poem that I found on the interwebs by Travis called We Know Visibility Well. But yeah, I will let Annie read. Tube door opens. I sit down, an eruption of laughter. We know visibility well. A crowded bus, only the seat next to me is free. You choose to stand. We know visibility well. Too many tweets, another newspaper lies, debating on TV again. We know visibility well. I got called a freak the other day on the Victoria line. No one did anything but a man who overheard carried on watching Drag Race on their phone. As no doubt someone who had shared an everyday feminism article earlier that day kept their head down. We know visibility well. I no longer search for visibility. It will not block the punch. We know the feeling of visibility. We are aware of what it means to be seen. To be watched. To be followed be scrutinised. I no longer search for visibility. Call this a commitment to something more. (sighs) Okay, so here's the thing, right? One, this poem, no one will care, but this poem is written in free verse, which I mean, hello, brilliant. I can't believe I'm just so intuitive that I picked a... poetic form that the podcast is named after um but i also i mean the the wonderful thing about free verse is i think it's very appropriate for trans poetry because the whole point of free verse is that there are no rules the whole point of it is that you can write whatever you want it doesn't have to follow a meter it doesn't have to follow a rhyme scheme and i just think that the fact that every as it turns out i discovered every single poem i picked for today's reading (laughs) It's in free verse. And I realized that I, I think that's a, just a really wonderful serendipitous thing that these trans poets have decided to write in free verse for these particular poems. But that's the total side nerd point. Travis's chapbook, Before I Step Outside, You Love Me, which is from 2017. They talked about this at the interview with Jess. They wrote it in public. They wrote it like on public transport while they were walking after being harassed, while being stared at. Like every single entry in that chapbook kind of reflects on their experience of navigating the often violent nature of public spaces as a black trans feminine person. And I just, the thing that I really love about this poem in particular is that it's so immediate, it's so honest, it's so challenging. Like it really points out the fact that there is a hypocrisy in people who get entertainment from the queer community, who see themselves as feminists, but who don't actually act on that, who don't stand up for the members of that community, who don't understand the intersectionality. And I think... The commercialization of both of those yes. things, you know, like the number of, God, I don't know, badges and baseball caps and t-shirts that have Yes Queen or whatever mm. on them. And the question of how many people who would wear one of those would necessarily step in if they saw something happening. Like, there's a very big divide between what has been appropriated for commercial use yeah. and is a very easy thing to wear and like 
the thing that really struck me in this poem is the Travis's emphasis on visibility and how exposed they feel mm. as such a visibly trans person. And like, you know, Disclosure, the documentary mentions that as well. Like there's a sort of a double bind in being visible. Like, yes, you have more representation, but you are more of a target. You know, when Travis was speaking, that time I heard them speak in Edinburgh, there's something that they said that night that I still remember so vividly because Jess was asking them about this and they explained how, you know, when they walk around South London, of a normal day in their normal dress, which is sometimes quite flamboyant, very visibly queer. They're a visibly trans person. They often get like cars in the street stop and like roll down the window and like the drivers will shout something out the window at them. And that's really uncomfortable to hear and to have confirmed, but like it's a reality. But the way that Travis spoke about it, yeah, I mean, obviously I have deep conflicting feelings about it. I wrote a whole chapbook about what that experience is like. But the thing is, I still stop traffic. I walk out of the house and I can stop traffic. And they just spun it as this empowering thing where they're like, yeah, I, I acknowledge that there's two sides to that and it's a nuanced issue and I, I feel very conflicted about it sometimes. But I can still stop traffic just by walking down the street. Mm. It just stuck with me so much when they said that because it's such a wonderfully self-affirming, assertive thing to do to sort of go... I mean, that's that's the fact, you know, like just by being who I am, I can stop traffic. I am that impactful. I am that powerful. Yeah. And, you know, again, being non-binary, being obviously butch doesn't have the same effect. Like it doesn't have this. I don't have the same experience, especially as a white person. But I have noticed since embracing that more and sort of the days that I do do the house and I am more sort of mask of center. I do get stares and I do feel people's eyes on me. And I do understand that feeling of feeling very visible and very exposed. But every time I get into my head about that, I literally, I remember Travis saying, I can stop traffic. Oh, and it just seeing that in this poem as well, it gives yeah. me that same sense of them giving that challenge to other people and saying like, I am standing in my power and I'm asserting that visibility is not enough. Like I call in a greater, I call this a commitment to something more. Mm, so good. So powerful so intuitive yeah in the in the introduction to their chapbook they write i take a selfie before i go outside to remind myself how i looked in that moment to remind myself that it is not me who is the problem more the world that cannot hold me i love that they make that point about how they they do this sort of ritual before leaving the house to remind themselves that they're not the problem which is the case, but like it's hard to reaffirm that when you have long-term, yeah. broad-based societal ignorance or intolerance. I think it's such a powerful thing that they put that in a chapbook for other people to read and to take power from. And I also, oh, I, I mean, I obviously went down a whole internet hole when I was researching this because I wanted to sort of find out more of what they had said about this or around this question of visibility. And in another interview that they did I think this one was with Mary Jean Chan actually which is really really great they talked about how uh, in terms of visibility there's obviously been huge strides and they nodded to people like Laverne Cox but I also question if it's the right type of liberation visibility isn't going to save me Caitlyn Jenner's Vanity Fair cover doesn't stop you from getting punched we're still not thinking about trans healthcare about prison abolition about the bigger structural issues that affect trans people but I think it's way deeper than that what I mean when I say the world cannot hold me is that we are so obsessed with the binary that we would really have to shift the whole world in order for people like me to be accepted we would have to unlearn thousands and thousands of years of a structure and that just again like that just hit me so hard when I was reading it because they're right because it is systemic the last thing I, I will pontificate about yeah. with, uh, with regards to Travis. In August last year, they came back to Edinburgh to the Fringe with their performance art piece, Burgers. And they wrote this performance art piece after they had been walking across a bridge in London and a random passerby threw a burger at them. Again, as another instance of street harassment. They were so, like, obviously so hurt by this and so deeply conflicted and troubled by this being, you know, not in any way an isolated event. They wrote a whole performance art piece about, about it. And... I had no idea what to expect. There is a twist. This is the twist. So if you don't want to hear it, fast forward. They stop and they ask the audience for a volunteer, preferably a cis straight man who has not been on stage before. And the night that I was there at the beginning, it was this whole prop of having a book with predetermined questions and answers. And then 
Suddenly, some of the questions that Travis asks are scripted, but the answers in the book are blank. And the point is that the volunteer has to provide their own answers. So it's things like Travis suddenly saying, when did you know you were a man? Person on stage has to answer it, honestly. And it was one of the most astonishing pieces of performance mm. art that I have ever seen. Because what happens is the cis man who is on stage suddenly understands, and so does the audience, what it means to be visible and be exposed in that visibility and be very much under scrutiny. You understand just a taste of what it is like to be a trans person and have that level of scrutiny. Yep. Some of the questions and conversation that they had was so fascinating. One of the questions Travis asks is, do you cry often? And is like purposefully, you know, asking quite provocative questions that have to do with masculinity and the stereotypes around masculinity. But what was really refreshing is like, I had never heard a cis man talk mm. about his masculinity in this way. And the volunteer that night said, you know, I cry a lot, actually. I, I Yeah. And Travis comments like, you seem very confident. This volunteer says, yeah, I, I mean, I, I used to be bullied for being sensitive, but I, 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 I think it's a good thing. And there was something so beautiful about this just brief moment between two absolute strangers with a full audience of people watching talking about their experiences of masculinity and being judged for how they operate within that. And it was just this gorgeous empathy that you could see on stage between a trans person who has so many conflicting feelings about cis people judging them mm. and a cis person who's totally empathizing. So yeah, that is, that is why I wanted to start with Travis Alabanza because I um, just really wanted to <laughs> whack lyrical about how incredible they are. They also, I mean... I think everyone who's sort of interested in what I've been saying should go immediately follow them on Instagram because they have a really wonderful platform and they use it in a really wonderful way and, you know, lift up a lot of trans activists in the process. So, yeah, I'm going to let Annie talk now. <laughs> OK, so one of the poetry books that I sort of really discovered for myself during lockdown was Denez Smith's Don't Call Us Dead, which was quite a serendipitous read really. I had been given it by a friend who was clearing out some books a couple of years ago and I'd put it on the shelf then during lockdown was looking at what to read and quite coincidentally really picked it up as all of the Black Lives Matters protests were really um, really gathering momentum and it's absolutely amazing book. I can only recommend it. It was one that oh the poems are they're immediate and they are beautiful and they are visceral and you return to them and they are they're such a good example of of how poems and art generally can be absolutely political and yet also wonderfully beautiful and wonderfully intricately crafted there's often i don't know a spectrum put up or an opposition put up between like political art and yes art for art's sake or whatever and this is a book that just shows that is complete and utter nonsense so yeah Denise Smith is a fantastic poet uh, they are a black queer non-binary HIV positive writer and all of these identities absolutely inform their work so a lot of their work hence why it was so um so serendipitous when I read it is is about living in America and living in today's society as a black male presenting person and the first poem in the book is this gorgeous gorgeous long piece about um imagining a heaven for murdered black boys and i think this is the thing is it is heartbreaking and yet it's so beautiful and full of joy because it is imagining this heaven and this positive place and so the um that's where the title comes from of please don't call us dead Call us alive someplace better. We say our own names when we pray. We go out for sweets and come back. That final line for me, or the final line that I read is, oh, such a clincher. But yeah, so the poem that I wanted to actually read from the book, although obviously I want to read all of them because they're all amazing, is A Note on the Body. Your body, still your body. Your arms still wing, your mouth still a gun. You tragic, misfiring bird. You have all you need to be a hero. Don't save the world, save yourself. 
you worship too much and you worship too much. When prayer doesn't work, dance, fly, fire. This is your hardest scene, when you think the whole sad thing might end. But you live. Oh, you live. Every day you wake, you raise the dead. Everything you do is a miracle. Holy shit! Oh my god! And I love it so much. You know, you know what's wonderful about that is right? that that is a poem that literally I've never heard it before, it's but you read it so, so well. Perfect. But it really outlines you need to take care of yourself. Like self care is more important than any other late capitalist productivity you could devote yourself to. Like you need to take care of yourself first watch out for your community like and they don't have to put it in those words but like that is so clearly what the message is as you're listening to it and I just love that there's that emphasis on empathy and also the recognizing the existence is remarkable and existing when you are a multiply oppressed person from a whole bunch of intersecting identities and that is something to be celebrated and something to, I just think it's wonderful. And I think it's a gorgeous piece as well because it speaks to so many situations. And this was I uh, one of my fun activities over lockdown. Um, I was sifting poems for a poetry competition that had been submitted. And unsurprisingly, a lot of people had written poems about lockdown, uh, which varied in quality, let's say. <laughs> Um, but the thing that I realized is I don't want a poem that tells me what to think about it. Mm. And I mean, obviously there are exceptions there, but so many of these poems, I thought, you know what? Take out the word lockdown. Take take out the awful rhymes on social isolation. Oh, no. oh my God. So many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so bad. But, you know, the best poems that were responding to the situation were reflections on being isolated and mm. reflections on this sense of alienation that you had and dislocation. Uh, possibly, if the poem wasn't so good with all of those rhymes in it. Oh my god! Um, oh, it was seriously like it's so yeah, burden to bear. Such high standards now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, where you sort of thought strip out the context, and I'm not saying that that's always that should always happen, mm. but I think that this is. It's a wonderful poem because you kind of think you could come to this with so many experiences and it can speak to you. It's also, I again, I absolutely recommend reading Denise Smith. I think they are. Yeah. It's the best poetry book I have read in a long time. Oh, but that's It's wonderful. a really interesting piece on the page as well, like mm. in terms of the way that there's a lot of white space and there's a lot of a lot of silence in a way built into the poem which i think is also always really fascinating and it's in free verse isn't it yes (laughs) indeed. strange that (laughs) oh thank you for that that was delightful do you want to talk anything else about tonight smith or should we move on to the next person in our program i would mainly say read them because they're great i just think if you want to read I mean, firstly, anyone who has come out of the discussions about uh, Black Lives Matter over the last couple of months and wants to read more writing by Black writers, this is an amazing place to go. Um, Secondly, anyone who wants to see how political poetry can be taken to its absolute best should read this. It is just absolutely beautiful. What was the name of the collection again? Don't Call Us Dead. Right. I was about to hold up the cover to the screen so you could see it, but I've realised that's not how this works. (laughs) On to our final act. The headliner of this episode. There's a a reason I wanted to... (laughs) There's a reason I wanted to talk about Eileen Miles, which I'll sort of, you know, end on that particular note. They are an American poet. They are now 70 years old, which you cannot really tell by looking at them because they're just one of those like characters where you're just of a vintage that like I couldn't possibly guess what age you are. You're just ageless. For the 70 year old American poet, they were very active in the poetry and the queer scenes 
in specifically New York since the 1970s. They first identified as a lesbian, but now they sort of identify as butch and trans. They were in the T magazine, that's the New York Times magazine. They were in the T magazine April feature this year on studs, femmes, butches in media. And it was really, it was one of the most wonderful things to happen to me during lockdown was that article. And it has its problems and it has its drawbacks and so on. But I just to focus on the positive right now, there's a video compiled of different interviews of butch trans people that talk about their experience of being out and butch and Eileen is there and talks about you know having identified as a butch for so long and now identifies as trans and how they're still photographed sometimes in a way that tries to sort of evade their masculinity and they kind of go no like I want you to capture like the ruggedness I want you to capture like the the way I sit like I don't want you to sort of polish over it and it's something so like lovely about that um about the fact that they were just sort of like no I I own this and I want you to understand that I once met Eileen Miles when they were in Glasgow a few years ago because they had just released Afterglow which is dog memoir it's literally a, a memoir of a dog that they had and that's another reason why you know that they're good people and it was, <laughs> it was in Moor, which anyone who's not familiar with Glasgow Ormore is this repurposed church that's now a, a venue and it's this beautiful gorgeous church interior where Alistair Gray who is a famous Glaswegian author and illustrator has like painted these beautiful murals across the ceiling and I was there with a friend of mine who's doing a PhD on Miles and who has like met them a couple of times and introduced us there was something so down to earth about Eileen Miles like they were just standing there and just like shook my hand and was like oh hey it's like nice to see you and there was like this very strong sort of Boston inflected American accent and I had a brief chat and then we had to go sit down. And as there was just this like brief moment when Miles looked at the two of us and I could just see it in their face. They just immediately assumed that my friend and I were dating and there was nothing to be said. Like it was too late because we were about to walk away and like sit down. And it's just like sometimes, sometimes the sort of the queer hive mind that, that can communicate wordlessly just gets it so wrong. Um <laughs> But <laughs> we sat down and I, this was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard Eileen Miles read. And as part of the event, they, they read a selection of their poetry before they, they read from the memoir. And, you know, they talk about their troubled relationship with their dad, how briefly they loved their dog, Rosie, um, sort of grit of living as an out queer person in New York in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And what struck me while they were reading was just how much they could expose themselves and be so like honest and sort of raw but still seem incredibly enigmatic like there's there's sort of an openness about their poetry and a and a plainness I mean like plain like plain as day not plain as in simple because mm. sometimes it's quite sort of layered but that and their mannerisms their voice which is like a really sort of deep Boston accent their facial expressions were all so masculine to me and that kind of queer masculinity felt so familiar to me in a way I couldn't articulate yet. Yeah, yeah T minus 12 months till 18 comes out as non-binary. But Miles also, <laughs> Miles also talked about their grandmother and her weird little West Ireland accent and the fact that like I at home have a weird little West Ireland accent. That both made me feel very dragged but also there was a part of me that was like, kind of want to know who their grandmother was because like what if I know her <laughs> anyway they're very down to earth and you like you get that from as soon as they open their mouth and I, I found this fantastic probably the best way to explain this I found this interview in the Paris Review and they were asked you were friends with like Allen Ginsberg and Robert Lowell in the 70s of New York when like history was being made you know to what degree does a literary posterity ever enter your consciousness I mean like that old kind of poetic fame, that dream of immortality. And Eileen Miles replied, what do I care? I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) So refreshing about them just being like, what, what the, I don't care. But I, after I had heard them read an or and more that time, I wanted to read more of their stuff like immediately. And I got their selected poems and read it through. And there was one poem that stuck out to me which they wrote in 1991. It's called An American Poem. And I think it might, maybe it's a bit long for us to read in full. I was going to say it is very long. Do we want an extract of it? The lines are very short, but it is very long. So here are a few extracts from An American Poem. You can read the whole thing on the Poetry Foundation website. And again, we will share the link. 
I hopped on an Amtrak to New York in the early 70s, and I guess you could say my hidden years began. I thought, well, I'll be a poet. What could be more foolish and obscure? I became a lesbian. Every woman in my family looks like a dyke, but it's really stepping off the flag when you become one. Um, uh, jumping a bit further. I am a Kennedy, and I await your orders. You are the new Americans. The homeless are wandering the streets of our nation's greatest city. Homeless men with AIDS are among them. Is that right? That there are no homes for the homeless? That there is no free medical help for these men and women? And the poem then ends. I am not alone tonight because we are all Kennedys. And I I'm your president. It's a great poem. So in it, uh, Miles makes up this story that they are from like the Kennedy dynasty. It's like the running joke throughout the longer poem. Um, But the thing I wanted to sort of bring up with this is that they're talking about being in the New York, being in New York in the 80s and 90s when AIDS is at a crisis point and they're in the queer community that is so heavily affected by that. And they're writing a poem that talks about being in a privileged position where you can enact change like as a member of the Kennedy dynasty which they're not they grew up in a working class Boston background but what I love about this poem is that it's talking about all these really like political issues and then it ends in a, such a surprising way because they say it's not normal for me to be a Kennedy I am no longer ashamed no longer alone I am not alone tonight because we are all Kennedys and I am your president and it just seems to me like you know, they, at this point, they still identified as butch, but they now identify as trans. Granted, it's anachronistic to sort of retrospectively apply that, but I'm going to. So the fact that like a trans person is writing a poem about running for president and uh, and being president and being part of a dynasty and like claiming the power that comes with all of that institutional privilege is a is also sort of a challenge to the people reading or hearing this poem who are it's like we are all Kennedys. We all have that ability. We all have that responsibility. And like, I remember reading this poem and sort of being immediately confused because I hadn't, I didn't know Miles' background. So I just sort of took it at face value and went, oh my God, is that Eileen Miles a Kennedy? <laughs> and I'd be like, no. Yeah, I did that too. <laughs> but what, what I did find out is that Eileen Miles in 1991 to 1992 conducted a quote unquote openly female write-in campaign for the opposite of president from the East Village. And that spiraled into this bigger sort of national project where it was part performance art, part protest. And it was meant to offer an alternative glimpse into what progressive, radical and like socially committed politics could look like. And like, this was a campaign that spread across 28 states by MTV and like other media outlets. I mean, obviously they were ultimately unsuccessful because Bill Clinton became president. But I just, that in and of itself, the fact that this poem is part of a political history where Miles is like very radically pointing out that there is an alternative glimpse of what polit of socially committed politics could look like. I was reading this yep. while Black Lives Matter movement was like taking hold in like June, July, 2020. Mm -hmm. And when there's like all of these social justice movements that are like pointing out that there can be a progressive, radical and socially committed politics. And I just had this like incredible moment where I was like, this has been happening for decades. Like this is a trans person writing this in 1991 when a Democrat is about to take office and they're pointing out that like, we can do better than that. We can be more progressive than socially committed. And then I find out the famous, I want a president poem that Zoe Leonard writes in 1992 was written to celebrate Eileen Miles' presidential run I have read Zoe Leonard's poems yeah. so many times and like posted it on social media so many times. The one that starts, I want to die for president. I want a person with AIDS for president. And I just, I, it was this whole like intertwined literary and political history I wasn't aware of and was so excited by because it still feels so relevant and immediate for us right now. And again, you have trans people at the forefront of that movement trying to fight for everybody's rights. Briefly back to Miles. Because it's all, you know, it's all one. Like, Zoe Leonard is writing this because of Miles' presidential run, and Miles is writing it because there's such an enormous amount of pressure and discrimination being enacted against the queer community. And it just struck me, as I was reading through all of this and making all these connections, 
trans activists have always been at the forefront. And, you know, in episode six, when we kind of talk a little bit more about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, something that I came across when I was learning more about Sylvia Rivera is she criticized the Pride movement a lot for marginalizing the trans activists that founded Mm -hmm. it. Because like, even though she was there the night of the Stonewall riots fighting back, she was still relegated to the back of the Pride parade. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of something that keeps coming up as like trans people are on the are on the front lines in civil rights movements, and yet are the ones who are specifically relegated to the back. And like with Sylvia Rivera, there's also the added intersection of her race being a factor in her discrimination, and it just you know it also reminded me of the fact that like more locally we have trans activists like Melza Wusu and the Free Black University revolutionizing the way academia should be conceptualized. And organized like again this was sort of during lockdown they crowdfunded over seventy thousand pounds to create a free black university yeah. which would offer a decolonized curriculum like make space for mental health community support in central to that project they said like this this project does not see black and lgbtq plus students as an addition or an afterthought but as the center of the educational experience and it just seems like everywhere we see radical change starting with usually a black or POC trans activist fighting hard for everyone's rights. Their vision belongs yeah. to everyone who wants to address inequality. It just seems to me like it would be really remiss of me to not point that out if we're talking about trans poets in general. And I mean, I think that's worth saying as well, actually. I'm definitely aware of this for most of the Scottish trans poets, that they are amazing and incredible campaigners and are so politically engaged and active and also compassionate and bring a lot of compassion to that activism uh, which I think is also really a really important thing and that is a thing that is absolutely right that trans activists so often are at the forefront of radical change and that can quite often be in very very local and localized ways mm-hmm. um, absolutely but that if if you kind of scratch the surface you'll find them there yeah that is that's everything i i wanted to sort of pontificate about with regards to poetry right now it actually feels quite cathartic um because i i've been reading and thinking so much about this for the last sort of few weeks and i just wanted to sort of spend the first episode back after hiatus just going over these poems that i just really like hit home and like that i've just sort of been sitting with me for a while yeah there's just so good and i'm really excited to come back to to some more trans authors later on in this series but i think we can get on to our last segment which is what to read now our recommendation do you want me to go first or do you want to go first go for it so before lockdown i went to a book event in lighthouse with juno roach and while I was there, uh, she was talking a lot about this book that she wrote called Queer Sex, which is a trans and non-binary guide to intimacy, pleasure and relationships. And I started reading it and suddenly I was halfway through. It felt like two minutes. Like it was, it was just a very easy, easy in the sense of like accessible, a really interesting read because she's so honest about the fact that like she's a trans woman and her experience of fantasizing about having the body that she wanted and then suddenly having the body that she wanted and realizing that it's not the fantasy that she had imagined. She has to sort of recalibrate how she negotiates intimacy and relationships with other people. And again, this, this question of like, when do I disclose that I am trans? Like, is this going to be like another thing and, and how to negotiate having a relationship with her own body in the course of that? And the book itself, like it starts with an introduction from her, but the book is composed of interviews with other non-binary and trans people talking about the same thing. And she conducts these interviews in like clearly a very sort of accessible, open way where she offers her vulnerability first and then sort of offers a space for them to reciprocate if they feel comfortable. And it's just very lovely. It's very affirming. It's like there's points where it's actually quite funny and empathetic like she talks about these really universal experiences of like you know I don't really know how to approach someone or I don't really know at what point I need to be like super vulnerable with this person and like overshare or like when is the correct point in communicating with someone that oh well I am trans or I am HIV positive or whatever it might be it's just like it's very poignant and very funny and very 
I don't know, it was just very compassionate. And I was just reading it and just feeling very, you feel like you're a friend of hers, that she's just sort of telling you what's on her mind. And then like at the same time, I, I learned so much from reading it about intimacy and pleasure and relationships are, there is no formula. There is no template that you're supposed to follow. There is no rules. You just have to be true to yourself and like honest about what you want and brave in doing that. And it's, I don't know, there's something very universal about that to me, while also giving you so much context for what specifically trans and non-binary people have to negotiate on top of default heterosexual cis person's experience of intimacy and relationships. Yeah, I just, it's just really fun and lovely. That is really lovely. What about you? I have to confess my main, the main way that you kind of notice that all is not right at the moment in the world is like my way of dealing with things is um purely rereading children's books so uh so all this numbers is great guys um but no i have just finished a novella actually called to be taught if fortunate by becky Ooh. chambers which is it's lovely it's it is short um i lent it to a friend and she <laughs> just finished and messaged me being like i need more book <laughs> you're not a novella person it's maybe not quite for you but it's lovely it's a sci-fi novella and i'm not always a sci-fi person but this is beautiful one of the things that i just really appreciated about it was um it has four characters because they are they're in a spaceship so you know very limited cast and all of them are queer in different ways but that's never it's mentioned in passing because of different relationships or not relationship so you know like there's an ace character how many times do you have an ace character in a book and there's a trans character and then the other two two are either gay or bi okay and it's not a big deal and sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier of like always sort of the need for someone being trans there to be a big coming out out moment or that to be a plot point or whatever and it's just so nice for it to be incidental yeah so that in itself was lovely. So it's set at the end of the 22nd century and it's these astronauts going to planets much, much further away, like light years away from Earth, where there may be life. The concept is, and this is a a venue of of research that is happening apparently, is the idea of if we were able to get to other planets, not creating technology to make that planet work for us, but somehow adapting our own bodies to work on those planets so so that we could have more muscle to cope with more gravity or whatever and so their bodies change which i guess in a way is also a i think you could do a really interesting queer analysis on this novel of like every novella every planet they arrive on and they wake up out of this torpor and they find the way that their body has changed on the first planet they are covered in glitter um (laughs) Well, there's no clear reading necessary for that. That is just there. I know, right? But yeah, it's just really beautiful. And there's a lot of a lot of joy in the sense of discovery and but also it does recognise the um ethical issues that come with exploration and the fact that if there is life somewhere then, you know, you are landing on someone's world and that is there is a colonial aspect to that. Oh, so anyway, I would absolutely recommend that. And I have also just started um, Factory of Tears by Volgina Mort, which is a poetry book. Anyone, anyone who follows me on Twitter will be aware that I am a little bit obsessed with what's going on in Belarus at the moment. Certainly while we're while we're recording, there's um, been massive protests mm. in Belarus. Um, these are the biggest protests, the only substantial protests that a dictatorship of 26 years has ever experienced. And unsurprisingly, there are um, human rights issues um, going going hand in hand with the crackdown on the protest. It's sort of, in some ways, one of the few good news stories of 2020 because um, it is an absolutely amazing demonstration of people having had enough and going out onto the streets and when there has been evidence of repression against people who have demonstrated more people coming to back them up effectively. But it's also heartbreaking. But if you don't know anything about Belarus and think that maybe a thing to do would be to discover de- discover a Belarusian author, then I can very much recommend Valentina Mort, who's a wonderful, wonderful poet. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's us for this episode. We will be back 
at some point I know our (laughs) original publication plan was the 25th of every month but then lockdown happened and that sort of fell out the window so we're just going to adopt a sort of ad hoc publication release from now on but I think that's you know that's partly going to be because it's to do with availability of other people but our next episode will be about Audre Lorde black queer activist poet all-around genius literary critic writer extraordinaire I'm really excited to read I've got like three books of Audre Lorde's on my desk that I'm just like shaking to read hopefully we will have a guest speaker with us depending on their availability we'll watch out for that thanks for listening and remember the first cry was a right there is no liberation without trans liberation queer history is history